Greetings, everyone, and welcome. I just realized um, a little habit that I have. I think I'm so uh, sort of hungry for connection that when it's time for me to begin to speak, uh, I'm the only face on the little screen. And as much as I feel <laughs> ambivalence about looking at myself, I, I start to look at that little square so I have someone to speak to. So I was just noticing that automatic habit that comes with being the sort of human longing for, for connection. I hope that as you've been sitting in preparation, uh, you've been practicing the, the sense of being with, which we practiced last time, which you can continue now as, um, as we sit. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. I was thinking as uh, we were chanting together how that last bit of the phrase, harmonizing all being, we so easily translate into harmonizing all beings. And that's certainly one piece of it. But it's much larger than that. And yet we have this sense of hope uh, for harmony. Today's a, an interesting day, as each day is, but uh, today marked by the first of the presidential debates here in the United States. Um, curiously, what some of you may not know, and it may not really make a big difference, uh, I enjoyed being um, on the lead debate team in, in high school and then actually started college on a scholarship to be on the de university debate team. Uh, it's where I got some of my training in public speaking and making an argument. And I'm, I'm only thinking about it because I realized as I was preparing for what I might want to speak about today, I found myself having a sense, a feeling of what it was like to give that first lead speech in a debate where you're setting out a case. And I thought, gosh, I'm it's almost like I'm debating um, something. 
And I think I had that feeling because what I want to speak about in just this little bit of time are things that are, um, are difficult. Um, there's a, a chapter in Joko Beck's first book called, I think it's something like, the title is The, the Talk That No One Wants to Hear. So it's the warning label on the package today, but it's something that's is so important and I want to integrate it with the last four or five talks that I've, I've given. Many, many years ago in my psychotherapy training with John Gladfelter, a person I've mentioned before, and my first real Dharma teacher, become, uh, oddly as it sounds, someone had asked him a very poignant question about their life um, in the group, um, you know, what they could hope for in this process of personal transformation. Psychotherapy was our, our venue at that moment. And John sat silently for a moment before responding, and then he said very simply, hope is cruel. It's kind of a surprising statement. I'd never heard anyone say such a thing. You know, we come to our therapist or a spiritual teacher, maybe it's just a spiritual friend, during times when we've lost hope, when we're searching for comfort, and hope that um, maybe they will gain some comfort in some way. So this was a very surprising response that I couldn't quite understand uh, right at the moment until we began to go deeper into it. I also remember reading about a dialogue, and I've spoken of this one many times, you've, you've heard it, between a young student and, um, and the, the great Tibetan teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, and Trungpa said to this young person, to practice is to walk the path between hope and despair straight into the face of uncertainty. I believe he was suggesting that not only is there no solace that you can cling to in hope, but also that we can't escape and hide in despair either. Instead, we're apparently being asked to reside in not knowing to walk into the face of uncertainty while maintaining, and this is the part he didn't say, while maintaining our integrity in a world marked by impermanence and con the contingent nature of experience, always changing and responding to everything else. And this sense of integrity, wholeheartedness, is what our practice offers us so that we can actually walk that path. Integrity you know, has a couple of aspects to it. The, the quality of being honest having strong moral principles and moral uprightness, which is certainly a quality that's essential in our practice. That's why the precepts are the first real um, thing that we study in, in depth and the first kind of vows that we take in this path, if you do so. It's also a quality that's crucial in, our, in a debate in, in our life right now. The quality of being honest, of having strong moral principles and moral uprightness. A second definition is a state of being whole and undivided, having holding together integrity. And this is what we work for, for ourselves, our families, our relationships, our culture, our society. A wholeness, and because we see so much dividedness. So this, this sense of integrity is really crucial at this moment. The invitation both I think what John was recommending and what Trungpa is saying 
is to stop in this kind of shimmering, uncertain now and to find a way to live according to our deepest and clearest aspirations guided by some brightness of the future. This is a little different, different language. And to do so honestly, based on a ground of ethical framework and morality, whole and undivided. And this is an act of imagination without clinging. And listen carefully, including a deep, profound acceptance of the parts of us that will cling so that we don't also then cling to non-clinging. Everything is invited and this open-hearted and boundless mind of presence. And in that, there's some possibility for brightness of the future based on our deepest aspirations. Now these teachings of kind of no hope, which isn't exactly what I'm saying, not, not being attached to hope, and not falling into despair, but walking into the face of uncertainty. This is the kind of teachings that generally don't bring people to the Zendo. These are the kind of things that give Zen a bad name and a reputation of being too hard or too cold. But these teachings are essential if we're going to see the truth of our predicament and wake up to what Joko Beck called the self-centered dream, that piece that we chant at the end of our inquiry. In fact, in Everyday Zen, the, the book I referred to earlier, Joko writes, and these are her words, intelligent practice always deals with just one thing, the fear at the base of human existence. The fear that we're not who and what we think we are. And by association, nothing else is what we think it is. And I would add or hope it will be or fear that it will become. Our hopes and fears, our attachments and aversions, our hopes and fears, as well as our confusions and our unwillingness to face life as it is, those are our delusions, are the way that humans create more suffering in the stream stream of existence, the stream of the present. She was making a really strong statement that intelligent practice always deals with this one thing, with fear. And if there's anything that's pervasive in our world right now, it's fear. Right now, on this day, at this moment, in the face of everything, and no matter who you are, what your political persuasion, what your um, gender, ethnicity, you can think of all the variabilities of the, the great multiplicity of who we are. Everyone is afraid. And it's how one deals with that fear that makes the difference. So the question becomes how are we going to navigate this transformation from living in fear, resisting reality, 
to dropping the barriers to clear seeing in order to live with more freedom and ease in the midst of it all. Not solving all the problems, but living with some freedom and integrity in the midst of it all. This is the fundamental question of practice. And these kind of strong and surprising statements by these three teachers, with John and Trungpa and Joko, all point to a common key. In order to unlock the gate to freedom from unnecessary suffering, one of the things we have to do is face our addiction to hope. We must loosen our grip on the demand or the clinging for safety and ease. And loosening that grip is only possible within the loving, supportive environment of Sangha, of family, of care, of love. Because a loving container is the context for moving within this constant uncertainty. And the poem of the third ancestor, which so many of you are familiar with, that first line that we use in our translation is, the great way is not difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences. To unattach to the inevitable preferences they will have. It doesn't say that part. Unattached to their preferences. So, if you reflect, if you've been here for the last maybe four or five weeks, I talked about truth in terms of the truth of the matter not some idealized or hoped for or solid grounded truth, but what's the actual, not fantasied, truth of the matter. There isn't some solid ground which finishes things as a final point. There's an ongoing flux and flow of the truth of the matter. If we can come into relationship with that, then we ask ourselves, so like, what's the point? That was the next talk I gave. And I spoke about the point is to live. We've been given this life. The point of living is to live and in the service of others and with others. Even though the next week I spoke about, even though the whole world is burning, everything is changing, but everything is also evolving. It's falling apart, coming back together, transforming all the time. That's all there is. And last week, in the midst of all of that, speaking about the essential quality of being with, being accompanying ourselves and each other and all beings and all things. Because this is, like that last line of our four practice principles, this is compassion's way to be with each moment, each thing. And even if we have some recognition of the truth of the matter, even if we continue with our vow, the point of living, as things change around us and we can be deeply and intimately with things, there's the disorientation that still comes when the bottom falls out. And some, many of us are feeling that now with the pandemic, with political situations, social, cultural things that are changing with the environment, which everywhere you look. There's a classic uh, kind of in Western Buddhism that so many of you have probably read. I read and enjoyed Jack Cornfield's A Path with Heart. And I was reading something uh, 
as best I could kind of from a beginner's perspective again, and I ran across the following statement. And stunned to kind of feel a resonance inside. He said, after we abandon our spiritual identity, as I was reflecting on how much I had let go of my initial hopes about what it would mean to practice, to be a Zen student, to be ordained, to start as all the things that I had placed hope in. So he says, after we abandon our spiritual identity, Meditation leads us through a total dissolution of self, through the dark night, like death itself. To enter this consciously challenges all we know of our identity, yet it is the path of freedom. So he's, he's talking about kind of a, a personal description here. But this dark night, this bottom falling out, this realizing later in the Shin Shin Ming when it says... Don't keep searching for the truth. Just let go of your opinions. And one of our strongest, most firmly held opinions is about how we'll be saved by our spiritual life. And the losses so many of us have faced <clears throat> and are facing right now is so much broader and deeper than, <clears throat> excuse me, everyday disappointment. I don't know how we could have been prepared uh, for so much doubt. Such a dark night. And this place we find ourselves in is not exactly depression. Although we might feel depressed. Because it's not simply psychological. Or just some a triggering of our conditioning. It's not that our conditioning isn't triggered. It certainly is or that our psychological uh, content then gets stirred up, because it does. But the great doubt, and this dark night, usually spoken of as the dark night of the soul, isn't fundamentally or solely psychological. This shift isn't about just being frustrated or disappointment, disappointed, that things aren't going our way. This is a deeper core resistance to facing and meeting life as it is. It simply can't be this way. At least I keep saying to myself over and over in the face of what we're, uh, we're hearing and seeing day after day. I heard a, a definition not too long ago, and some of you have probably seen this from the, the teacher Shenzhen Young. Uh, he made a little formula. Suffering equals pain times resistance. Without resistance, it's just pain. And then the next thing, and the next thing, life unfolding as it will. Suffering is pain multiplied by the resistance. And traditionally, one of the important functions of a, a teacher or a, a leader in some way in these kind of matters is to help students as they stumble and fall, as they face the fears that arise, allowing the letting go of false, false hopes and fending off the slide into despair. However, I, I also think that this is too big of a job for the teacher alone. 
I, I saw a cartoon that was sent to me recently um, by, by one of you, which I, I loved. It was one of those one-cell cartoons like you might see in The New Yorker or something. And it showed a classical psychoanalyst you know, therapist office. And the therapist chair was abandoned. The therapist's notes and pen were lying on the floor. And the therapist had joined the patient on the couch. And all the caption at the top just said, 2020. And this is what it feels like from a teaching point of view right now with me. I, I'm in it with you. And without a good bit of love and support, we simply can't tolerate the undoing, the grief, the fear, the uncertainty. And so you have to know that you're being held, not coddled and protected. This is the only way we can keep going. And when the time is appropriate, we come to know that there's actually no place to hide no place to go, no turning back. And so how do we do this without clinging to some fantasied hope or falling into despair? Now I'm going to read another short quote from Jack Cornfield from the same piece, and then I'm going to change the words a little bit, and this is our turn. He said, traditionally the dark night arises only after we've had some initial spiritual opening. You know, things are good in the beginning. And the first flush of practice, joy, clarity, love, and a sense of the sacred can arise. And with them, we experience a great excitement at our spiritual progress. However, these things will eventually pass away. It is as if they arise for us as initial gifts, but then we discover how much discipline and surrender are required to remain in these realms. That's the end of his quote. So this is the entry into the sort of long, long mission in practice. And this is what our forms are for, to offer a container in practice to hold us in the transformation, the cocoon that holds us in that transformation. And this is what a thousand years of Zen has been cultivated to sustain and support. Okay, I'm gonna go back through this just briefly. What if we change the world words a little, and I apologize to Jack for this, and speak not of the dark night of the soul, an individual perspective, but the dark night of our culture and our planet. His quote again, traditionally the dark night of our culture, our planet, arises only after we've had some initial Awakening and the first flush of this goodness, joy, clarity, love, and a sense of the sacred can arise. And if you'll excuse my pointed analogy, this difficulty right now is arising after what I thought was some goodness in the Obama administration or even previously in some of the ways that our culture, our country, other countries have worked towards uh, the betterment. I've just used that as an example. Then, she, then he goes on, and with them we experience a great excitement at our progress. The initial political 
uh, note from the Obama campaign was the change we need and later hope. As this day arise as the initial gifts and then we discover how much discipline and surrender are required to remain in these realms. We see how much discipline is required, how much surrender is required to hang in there during the evolution of our culture. And we have these forms in the Zendo which hold us together. And we have forms, not a thousand years, but almost 250 years of an American experiment that holds us together if we will use it. Cornfield goes on, he says, everything seems to be dissolving. The dissolution, the sense of dissolution of life, moment to moment, now the dark night deepens. As our outer and inner worlds dissolve, we lose a sense of reference. There arises a great sense of unease and fear leading many students into the realm of fear and terror. Everyone is afraid on every side right now. And abandoning our forms in the Zendo, abandoning our forms and integrity in our culture does not help. This is the stuff we don't talk about too much in practice because it's not very popular. And this is also why we have to cultivate real intimacy as spiritual friends so we can tolerate these kinds of challenges and use the energy released through the dissolution to guide us toward freedom and away from despair through wholeheartedness and diligence rather than clinging to hope. So this is what we have to do as a culture, as a nation, as a society. Basically, we're being asked to give up on trying to redirect this life that is out of control and to avoid what we dislike and can hardly bear and meet what arises with whatever integrity we can bring to the moment. Oddly, in choosing reality, we have to include choosing the suffering. And this triggers some of the most difficult forms of resistance I've faced so far. The resistance to allowing things to be as they are, as much as I may hate it, and that's a strong word. We're asked to really see the truth of the matter over and over and over to continue to engage wholeheartedly in life, the one we have, and to help others along, because that is the point. Even though the whole world is burning, we carry on guided by vows rather than being tossed about between hope and despair. In fact, our vows are the guardrails that we inevitably must use for the despair and hope that arise. And as best we can, we practice being with each other, with the moment, with what is needed, with our grief, with our gratitude, with our joy. This is intimacy, which is another word for awakening, deep intimacy and integrity. And when it seems like we can't count on anything that previously gave us hope, all we're left with is the present. 
just this. No fancy edges. And this is the place where we meet some gateway to freedom. But we don't get some new improved identity as a replacement. We say at the end of the precept ceremony and most of the formal ceremonies we do, we live like a cloud in an endless sky, like a lotus in muddy water. We don't transcend and take up residence in heaven, nor are we stuck in only the mud. We're actually both. As this spacious mind of awakening, grounded in everydayness, moves us beyond hope and despair. facing uncertainty. And from an ordinary perspective, we are guaranteed to lose everything. But we begin to realize, however, that in the bargain, we gain the whole world. Not the small one that we cling to, but the whole world, this world. Not the one we hoped for, or the one that we feared, but this wonderful, perplexing, frustrating, beautiful, magnificent, agonizing, heartbreaking, awe-fueled world. And this is what we're promised. And if that struggle calls you forward to raise your hand, please do, so we can speak about these things. and engage the very pieces that I've spoke about over the last few weeks. Hello, Clayton. Hi there. Um, Flint, I've been thinking a lot about this, the way hope can be cruel, and yet this concept of being positive and optimistic sometimes is really essential. And I wonder though, if I use optimism as a shield to protect me or to deny what's really going on, um, but I can't, my default is to rely on positivity. And, yeah. if, and as someone who's trying to recover from a, an illness that's totally changed my life, and I still feel really weak, I have to think positively that I'm going to get better. And it helps me a lot. So I know I'm going from the macro to the personal, but Good. there's got to be a usefulness in, can you help me discern between hope is cruel, but also relying on positive kind yep. of thinking to help get through? Because it, it is... Health-wise, I can see that negativity or giving in isn't good for me. And so I need to, to kind of discern between those things. So you think of that as a polarity. The giving in and surrendering to the negativity doesn't help. A fantasy grasp to something doesn't help either. That's why in the very first few sentences I said today, how do we move forward with the brightness of the future? 
and with an aspiration for goodness, that's different than hope. It's, it's like um, you have something on your desk there in front of you, like a pen or you have your glasses. Uh, let, just use your glasses, okay? You're holding them in your hand. Mm -hmm. Okay, now try to put them down. Now you put them down. Try to put them down. You're, it, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Oh, oh, okay, okay, yeah. It's different than doing it. Hope is like this trying. It's like, it's not really engaging. But if you have some brightness of the future because of your imagination and you have a practice and some aspiration without clinging to it as an outcome, I'll be crushed if I don't get it. Right. Totally fixed if it happens we continue in a positive direction, positive meaning life-giving in all the ways that I'm talking about, but that's very different than the particular way I'm talking about hope as the sort of yin and yang of despair. Yeah. Because the, the positive um, optimism that's balanced in reality is useful, but just having some fantasied ideas sets us up for a failure. Sets so us up for disappointment. Well, it's just interesting because I looked up optimism recently and it, the first definition was hopefulness. Mm -hmm. And I know that optimism can be a shield that, that maybe is not useful sometimes, but, um, but I find it to be essential. Um, yeah, and something that our practice does for us is help us maintain the discipline and undauntedness, which is the activity of that optimism, not the idea of it. The idea is, oh, it's all going to go well. The practice is, no matter what happens, I won't abandon myself and my loved ones or my practice. I'll continue to go on. That's, that's optimism in action, but without a particular outcome that is the fruit of that action. Yeah, I see the difference. It's, it's not an outcome. Okay. And that's why I have such a sermon about it because it's a hard one, you know, it's a tough one. So you're okay. asking very, very good question. Okay. Well, thank you. It's really been, I, I feel like I've been wondering how much I might abuse my optimistic nature. <laughs> and yeah, it's behind that just like you can anything else. You know, when I was working with, and I'll say this because you've spoken about an illness, when I was working in oncology care, we were training professionals. We said, we'd use the word hope, of course. We'd say, there's always room for hope. You hope to be cured. When it looks like that's not going to happen, you hope for a good long life or a remission. When you see that doesn't happen, you hope for a good quality of life. And when that doesn't happen, you look for a good quality of death. There's always something to hope for. But if you take away hope, that whole arc that I just named mm -hmm. is willingness to stay with things as they inevitably change, no matter what, and to stay alive and connected to your life and your vows and the brightness of your future without it being, there's only one future, which is good. I get well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's very useful because I do think that positive thinking and recovery can be very useful, but it is. It is. Not, if it, not if it's a weird outcome oriented thing. Uh, that, that's right.
Mm -hmm. A lot of the research, and I know we're going on about this, but I think it's important. A lot of the research, because my specialties in behavioral medicine says that visualization of positive outcomes make powerful differences in healing. Mm -hmm. that's, that's all there. And all the research on patients who survive difficult illnesses against all odds are not the positive, I'll say even Pollyanna people. They're the patients that are really difficult and problematic they ask questions and they really they don't think that they play by the rules that they're not going to die no matter what people you know they're tough mm -hmm. and that's a different kind of optimism than just like it'll be fine right mm -hmm. okay well thank you yeah. mm -hmm. those questions had so many layers and so much i wanted to make sure we could speak to, to a lot of it because it's really the, the crux of the matter Hello, John. You're muted still. Unmute. There you okay. go. Okay. Okay. Talking about between hope and despair. I remember years ago, I was in a situation. It had to do with a relationship, either ending or not ending, or what I was going to have to do after that relationship ended. Anyway, I was uh, in a situation uh, where I could despair, I could hope, and so on. And when you talked about being not going to either of those extremes. What the uh, image that came to me was like a heavy iron ball that was being suspended between the two. And it took a tremendous amount of energy to keep that ball in the air rather than sliding off into despair or hope. That's right. And so it, it, it took a lot of in, that in that, <clears throat> excuse me, in that image, my image was of taking a whole lot of energy to stay in between those two. You know, is that inevitable that it's going to take a lot of energy or something, the practice you're talking about? <clears throat> and surrender. Uh, it does take energy. You're right to continue practicing because that's what it takes. Mm -hmm. That's also why we can't do it alone. It's not, it's too, too weighty to, to handle alone. That's why we have Sangha, friends, people we can go to. It's why you would raise your hand today. You want to connect. You want to reach out. You don't want to hold it all alone. It's why people come and uh, sign on to the call today so they can share because it is tough to hang. It's easier just to go to despair and complain mm -hmm. and how terrible it is and play ain't it awful. It's easier to go to hope. Everything's going to be fine. Uh, I'll turn it over. It'll be just perfect. You know, I don't have, no, we actually have to do our work and it is tougher. And if you are faced with doing what's easy, or what's hard, do what's hard with others because you'll have a different benefit. And sometimes we're blessed with certain things that help us and sometimes we're not. There's a story I've told some of you have heard where we were, uh, Peg and I one time during our days of training at the Austin Zen Center, we were at the, the Founders Hall early in the morning, the Kaisando, offering incense while people were sitting before we went down to open the Zendo for everyone. And during that time, she asked a very poignant and kind question. It was a complimentary one. She said, how did you get to be the way you are? I think she was speaking of some quality that she thought was, was, was good. It was just the two of us in the dark morning. And I said, you know, I, I think I've been blessed because I've been loved by so many people. In other words, I had pretty good attachment stuff early on. I, and then she said something very wise. She accepted that and she said, that only gets you halfway. Yeah. 
we do what we can, but what does it take in terms of the energy that you're speaking of, the practice that I'm speaking of, the connection with others to keep us going? We use whatever resources we have, that's not enough. We can't just cling to others either, that's not enough. They come together, and that's our practice. Seems, it seems to me that the amount of energy takes uh, seems overwhelming. It, it can, but being overwhelmed by it doesn't change anything. You still have to face it or collapse. So your decision is, what are you going to do with what feels overwhelming? Most of us feel overwhelmed these days. So what do you do? Do you do some wholesome practice with support of other people or do you give up? Or do you just hope for the best? That's why this is the talk that people don't want to hear about what it takes. It takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of surrender. It takes a lot of willingness and it takes a vow because that's the container that can hold it. Yeah. So thank you because you're, you're just like Clayton, you're bringing up one of the essential points and it's, I'm glad we're speaking about it. Mm. Okay. Is it Leah? Oh, you're muted still. Hi. Hi, what a lovely name. Hi, Flint. Thank you. It's Leah. Where are you, where are you meeting us from? Austin, well, Cedar Park, Texas. All right. Yes. Great. It's my first experience um, with, with this, with Apamada. <laughs> so, see your face and hear your voice. Yeah, thank you. That was an amazing, uh, there was so much um, in what you said. One of the things that, um, you know, it, everything feels hard right now. <laughs> and um, one of the questions that's swirling in my mind is my desire to, um, I love doing hard things, um, but what's hard to practice, and I want to hear about, hear your practices and your perspective on this is, is um, not having attachment to the outcome when you're doing hard things. And my, my way of dealing with it, I have, I have no Zen um, training or, you know, I'm just starting to learn more, um, is being attached to the Beginner, loop. that's where you need to start. <laughs> so I tell myself, you know, I'm learning something or I'm, I'm getting data or, you know, and I'm applying it to the next thing. Um, and it's, it's, I guess, my coping mechanism so that you know so that it's not not for not you know sure sure one of the things that i think we have to do in the beginning is respect all the coping strategies that we've developed through our life and know that they've served us they may be limited they may not be the whole story but they're part of the story and that we need to respect them and then the, the idea or the aspiration about not being attached to outcomes is kind of a, an ideal. It's something that orients us. Um, I'm definitely attached to certain outcomes that I would like <laughs> in the way that this planet gets taken care of, in the way that um, different racial and cultural and social things are handled, and the way that politics... I definitely am attached to outcomes. What I have to do is not be attached to my attachment. It's a, I know it sounds very weird, Zen. Like hold it lightly. 
because I'm not going to get everything I want. Just by definition, it's not going to go every way I want it. And I have to be as free to work with this result as this result. If I say, I'll be happy and I'll be able to work and I'll be fine if I get this result over here, but I'm just going to be pissed off and despairing or mad or, you know, if I get this result, that's going to make sure that I suffer. Because that gap, the larger that gap is the more suffering. But if I say to myself, I definitely have preferences. I'm pretty attached to them in some ways. I don't want to get distracted by my attachment because I'm going to have to keep going in the service of my best self and the people I love and the things I stand for and the vows that I want to follow. And if I get too distracted by my attachments, I can't stay, stay in that middle way. I can't stay practicing. You're human. I'm human. We're going to have attachments. It's unreasonable to think we won't. But we can, surprisingly, move to a place where we're not distracted and thrown around by them. There's an, an old phrase that Dogen Zinji, who was the founder of our lineage in this particular form of Zen, said. And I don't know if you're familiar with the word bodhisattva, but it's a classical term of winner, one who's dedicated to the freedom of others. It's a generous term in practice. He said, ordinary people are those uh, pulled by karma. Bodhisattvas are those led by vow. And so really what I'm talking about, are you, if you got a tiger by the tail, are you slung around by your, your history and your coping strategies and your wants and your dislikes and everything? That's pretty much what media shows us. Mm -hmm. I get slung around by it all. Or are we led, not pulled, led by vow? even as we're buffeted. But like I said, it's like our vows, our practice are like guardrails. It keeps us moving forward in that direction that is wholesome. Not just happy, but wholesome. Not just happy, but joy-filled. The things that Clayton was talking about. Is this making some sense? Yeah. Good, good, good. So much. Great. Thank you. Absolutely. And thank you so much for your courage to raise your hand and come forward. This is what we need. And your question is wonderful. Thank you. Hello, Travis. Hello. Hi. My question is thinking about the Jack Cornfield quote that you shared and its relationship with the stages of response, if you will, depending on whether or not we have had that initial success of practice and then moving towards uh, the great um, discipline, surrender, and willingness that you referenced. And I'm wondering in terms of our whole earth ecology as a, as a species planet unit, uh, have we had that first success to the point where we are um, entering into a dark night where that response is appropriate, the uh, surrender, the willingness, the uh, discipline, or, or have, have we never even gotten to that point? Uh, and that's, a, that's a great and really complicated question. <laughs> um, the, the way I would say it is in my brief life, of close to 70 years, 
there have been times in which I think I have experienced at least the culture I've grown up in, in which there are moments of great joy and, and kind of a, a wholesome striving to make good in this world that we live in. Some of it was uh, worrying if there's going to be overpopulation. How do we take care of water resources? Can we explore space? There, there are many things that if we just come together, we can make something good happen. The way that we began to change um, air quality really made a difference. And at the same time, there are equally factors that have gotten us to the point where we even wonder if there is a recovery now in terms of the planet. So I think that we have had both and they've moved together. There's a goodness. There's so many people working for the good. There's so many creative young people now working for the good of this planet and how things can change. And at the same time, there are forces in people, usually around greed and power, which are doing the opposite and sacrificing. Um, that's the way it is. So how are we going to, what's our vow? What's our aspiration for some brightness of the future, given the circumstances we live in? I quoted recently in a talk about this, uh, W.S. Merwin, the poet who uh, just died last year, who lived on, on Maui, where he was a, he's a conservationist and he had a, a palm forest and he was preserving endangered palms. He said, I know what's happening. I see what's happening on the planet. And on the last day, I'll be planting a tree. Meaning you do your practice no matter what. Even if it doesn't look good, you still do it. Because that's what you do. And so, you know, I don't know that we've had some great awakening and then some disappointment that, that may not look exactly the same. But I do feel like there are times when we've had uh, more um, bright, realistic aspirations for good and we've made some differences. Uh, and I think in the last few years, we've had to come to terms with the fact that it's been too short, not enough. And uh, we live in a situation right now where it doesn't seem like, at least in our country, people that are leading things are share that aspiration for the good or understand the impact of what's happening. Thank you. That clarifies that our response is the same. <laughs> yeah, it is. Regardless of where we're at collectively. We keep on no matter what. Uh, that's the undaunted, that's how the practice keeps us within our, our framework. Are you in Austin, Travis? Yes, I'm calling from Austin. Oh, okay, okay. In Travis County, huh? That's right. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. I love seeing fresh faces. It's good. And wonderful questions. Hi, Wayne. Hello, old friend. I know. Yeah. Oh Waiting way too long since we've spoken face to face. I know. It's so good to see you. Yeah, it's marvelous to see you. Um, I have uh, enjoyed your uh, your description of uh, about you and John Gladfelter and the, the conversation about hope, having you and I share many of the same people and basic yeah. training philosophies. I've heard that considerably in the Gestalt therapy world. Uh, don't hope, do. Uh, mm -hmm. Hope can be a postponement. 
but what I wanted to say is that I, I got to, as you were speaking, I got to thinking about, about, about Soren Kierkegaard, uh, sort of the first existentialist and uh, who took the German idealist to task, as I recall, uh, Hegel and Swedenborg and uh, because of their, he thought they rushed too quickly to uh, hold out uh, whatever your problem is, just hope. Mm -hmm. And instead, uh, he recommended a kind of a hard-headed, uh, uh, you, you know, stance of personal, deep personal responsibility. Right. And I think that has uh, that rubbed off on me a, a great deal. And in many respects, giving my uh, early life struggles an unattachment, I... It, it has served me well, but I think, as you know, I have come down with a debilitating illness that uh, you know, uh, means I'm losing my mobility. And um, I'm happy to say that in my own practice, I, I, I really didn't despair very long about that. I, I found an opening to actually begin to do more of what I wanted to do anyway. Uh, much more reading, much more time for introspection, personal growth, um, poetry, uh, tempting my hand at writing. Um, the question I have then is that I think that in the surrender of hope as a, well, at its worst, uh, an abdication of personal responsibility, uh, we're not really talking about then living life with that kind of uh, hard-bitten existential edge that, uh, you know. Not hopeless. <laughs> hopeless, right. Uh, as, as somebody said so so vulgarly, you know, life's a shit sandwich and every day is another bite. Yeah. It's, it's horrible. Right, that's, that's, the that's, the that's the flip. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah that's, that's, isn't that. Right. Um, and I, I loved your description. It's that facing of that middle way. Yes, it's a wholeheartedness, which um, I've seen, and you and I have talked about. One last thing, Kierkegaard also talked about your spirituality, since this is another stream that we both swim in so deeply. Yes. Um, what you do with your eroticism. And he wasn't yes. talking about spirituality, it was that life force, that energy. Right, right. You know? right. That's really what we're talking about here. Yes. How do you maintain, even if you can't walk, Yes. How do you channel your energy that you have? Yes. And, um, so that yeah. it becomes life-giving and then fits all the other things that we're talking about in terms of a wholesome practice. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So thank I you would... for bringing this forward. I know we're kind of close to the end of our time. Yeah, I think I'm we are. Glad that that you came in. I, I was just uh, thinking about how sad it is to think of you not being able to get around like you used to and then thinking about us together on that big bmw bike going through the mountains <laughs> and how free and mobile we seem to be as young men at that time so yeah those were wonderful times yeah. our, our hike launch peak yeah good to see you yeah. and give my love to gene i will same to aaron yes. and we'll we'll finish with our four practice principle chant if you will Bring the bell closer. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, 
the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream, each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream, each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Thank you so much for being here. And hopefully some of you might hang around to speak with each other on the on the on the porch afterwards. Jessica. Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity. And your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you.